Hey, you're listening to Roadwork. Our sponsor this week is Mack Weldon. Mack Weldon is better than whatever you're wearing right now. Mack Weldon believes in smart design, premium fabrics, and simple shopping. I shop there. Why not? You just go to MacWeldon.com. It's easy. Product's great. Shopping's it's totally easy to do it. And that's what we want. We're guys, right? We want to just go and pick out, oh, I want one of these, one of these, one of these, out. They make the most comfortable underwear, socks, shirts, undershirts, hoodies, and sweatpants that you will ever wear. But that's it. That's all they do. All their products are naturally antimicrobial, but they want you to be comfortable. So if you don't like your first pair, you can keep it and they'll refund you. They'll refund everything. They don't care. No questions asked. And not, not only do these things look good, they perform well too. You can work out in them and wear them to work, go out on dates, everyday life, you name it. Mack Weldon stuff is comfortable and looks good. And you're going to get 20% off using the promo code ROADWORK at MacWeldon.com. Hello. Hey, John. What's up? Hi, Dan. How are you? I'm good. I'm just adjusting some of my settings. Oh, okay. Let me get set up, too. You know, I've got some... Uh, oh, you got a little LaCroix LaCroix there. going. My coconut. That's how I get in the zone. Yeah, that's my zone. My zone for road work. uh, I'm learning more and more about all the people that are drinking LaCroix to excess. It's really a phenomenon. I think you would define to excess as as simply having one ever. Mm. I would think. (laughs) Right? You don't like them very much. Mm. No, I don't like them very much. <laughs> I don't like their. I don't like the, the the graphic art on the can. I don't like anything about them. Yeah, but I have a friend in uh, Portland who goes by the name uh, or the online uh, gnome de guerre uh, of hookers and popcorn. That's her. That's her her handle, her tag, and she is a uh, she likes uh, motorcycles. She is a motorcycle mama. And she drinks routinely, as far as I can tell from her internet consumption, between 10 and 40 LaCroix a day. Wow. And, and I mean, I guess I'm it's really, good that she's getting, she's getting enough fluid. Oh, she's getting hydrated. Very yeah, hydrated. Yeah, you want to stay hydrated. But to, she goes on frequent road trips. And um, one of her games is that she just documents the number of empty LaCroix cans that are like rolling around on her dashboard and on the floor of her truck. And every subsequent can that she opens, I just stare, stare deeper into the abyss, into the yawning, yawning chasm right, of LaCroix. And then I, but, but you know, Dan, I'm not afraid to talk shit about LaCroix, but everywhere I go, people are like, what do you mean? LaCroix is amazing. And I'm like, oh boy, it's like pod people thing. It really is. It's invasion of the body snatchers, except it's happening with LaCroix. And the weird thing is LaCroix is not new. It's been around for a very, very, very long time. But it seems like some kind of tipping point happened within the last year where you never saw it anywhere. It was nowhere, nowhere. And then the next day, everyone is walking around with it. It's in everybody's refrigerator. It's on. It's at Target. It's at Walmart. It's at Whole Foods. It's on every shelf of everything. And that, and it seemed to happen overnight. Well, it did happen overnight. We're, 
you're telling me this stuff existed before? Oh, yeah. Yeah, hold Did on. Always, I'm going to consult the website, but yeah, there is. Uh, always have a have like graphic art that looked like a Cindy Lauper record cover. <laughs> yes, it has. I'm looking to see if there's a, uh, you know, there's a the his- history of the product. I'll find it. Yeah, um, but it it has always looked like that, <laughs> and there it is, Lacroix spa- Lacroix sparkling water. Yeah, sparkling water is right. Is what they call it. It says, yeah. uh, oh, this thing has been around forever. Yeah. It was originally... 1840s. Yeah. No, it was originally marketed by the G. Heilman Brewing Company in LaCroix, Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. Oh. Mm-hmm. The product experienced a sharp increase in sales after a nationwide recall of Perrier brand carbonated water in the U.S. in the early in early 1990. Huh. Because LaCroix specialized in flavored beverages and not unflavored carbonated water, it is rivaled by Crystal Light. Mm-hmm. Competitor brands include Perrier's store brand, Sparkling Waters, and high-end independent brands. This doesn't tell me when it really began, but if it, was, if it saw a surge in popularity in 1990, that would imply that it's existed a- at least since 1990. <laughs> well, that would imply that. <laughs> yeah. You know, the reference to Crystal Light, I think, is very apropos because... When I was a kid, Crystal Light made a sudden appearance. Yes. In our home. It was touted as a miracle beverage. Just the same exact way that Tang was when Tang was touted yeah. as a miracle beverage. Yeah. And Tang was a miracle beverage. Let's be honest. I, well, again, this is how, how we're different. Tang was not consumed by me or anyone I knew until I moved to Florida from the Northeast. I never, I I heard the astronauts had Tang, but mm-hmm. I never, never tasted it, never had it, never tried it. And uh, I had no idea what it was until I moved to the Space Coast. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, then, and then I knew. Okay, oh, here it is. House. Here it is. Here it is. Here it is. Over 30 years, wow. LaCroix has the distinction of being the number one sparkling water brand sold in cans. <laughs> <laughs> that is a distinction. Originally made in Wisconsin circa 1981 by a local family-owned brewery, uh-huh. the brand was named for its local roots. La was taken uh. from the city of La, Cro- La Cro- Cross, but C-R-O-S-S-E, and okay. Croix, Croix, Croix hails from the beautiful St. Croix River, which flows between Wisconsin and Minnesota. <laughs> uh-huh. And it is not pronounced... It is pronounced Croy, not La Croix or however people like to get fancy and try and say it. So, so the La is from La Crosse yeah, and yes. the Croy is from St. Croix. Yeah. Wow. They really... <laughs> that's... <laughs> woo! Switcheroo! I know. Here's what it tastes like to me. It tastes like that family hooked up a, a tube <laughs> to the back of the, uh, the tailpipe of their truck. No. And they ran that... Through some, uh, they ran that through a BlackBerry air freshener into oh, some. Oh no, no! Into some tap. That's where they get the gas. the The bubbles are from the bubbles are from grandfather's uh, respirator, and then they take a they take like a one of those plug in air a Glade plug in air freshener, and then they make. Uh, it's not soda pop. It's not water. 
it's none of it's neither thing. It's an it's an it's a it's not the best of both of those things. It's the worst of both. It's the worst of soda pop and the worst of water. But I'm not going to argue Lacroix with you all day. I mean, we got more important things to do. I will say that my uncle had special spoons that we used only for tang. Really, spoons. And I will say that Crystal Light was touted as the solution to the Tang problem. The Tang problem being that we realized that Tang was not space food. It was sugar water. It was like sugar held in suspension. So much sugar that it was a, more of a solution. And then Crystal Light was, oh my goodness, we've solved the Tang problem. The kids aren't going to die of sugar overdoses anymore. And we drank sh- Crystal, Crystal Light for a while thinking it was a miracle drug until we realized that it was made out of uh, like old inner tubes. It had, it had so much aspartame or whatever was in it that, uh, that we were all being like, we were all being pickled in our own bodies. (laughs) Yeah. We were, uh, we were, we were science experiments. We had, we were drinking formaldehyde. (sighs) So now here comes LaCroix. Uh, the best-selling sparkling water in cans, and <laughs> I just have to... That's right. I, I feel like the other shoe hasn't dropped yet. Yeah. But anyway, we have bigger fish to fry. Well, well, there's something that I feel obligated to our listeners to ask you about, to, to bring up and talk to you about. I I have been put in an awkward position here. Uh-huh. Because I think that to to our listeners, I am sort of your, I think they see me, and I'm not denying that this might be true. Yes. They see me some to some degree as your handler. Oh, yee. Yeah. Um, I, I, at the very, maybe maximum form would be a handler. At the very minimum, I am, I am a middleman for opening a communique with you. I see. All right. And... People seem to think that if they ask me this question or if they ask me something or bring it up to me or bring it to my attention, that, uh, that I, will, I will make it happen on the show. I will, oh, I see. You're, you're obligated to be their, uh, their intermediary. Yes. So I, I will first say that uh, I, I've been listening to the other program that you do with Merlin uh, for many years. I was a little late. I was a season or two late to get interested in that show. But yeah. once I did, I, I really enjoy it. I still listen to it regularly. So I feel like I've been listening to you for a long time. Then we've done a show now and I've been racking my brain, but I don't think you ever mentioned that you had a brother. You've mentioned oh. your sister. Yeah. But then recently you posted some pictures of you and your brother mm-hmm. and an, a large number of people contacted me privately mm. to express concern about this. Why has John never mentioned a brother? I, and they said these words, many people echoed the same sentiment out of all the shows that he's done. I've never heard him mention his brother. I wondered, is, is this, can we leave this part in the show? Am I going to have to edit this out? Can we talk? Do you, do you in fact, a, do you have a brother and B can, wh- wh- why not reveal that he exists? Mm. Mm-hmm. It would seem like there's a part of your life there that, you know, mm-hmm. that has mm-hmm. ne- never been mentioned. Uh-huh. You know, like yeah. I don't, I don't talk about do I have a lawnmower or not, but that's 
you know, but here now there's photo, there's a photograph of you with your brother. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It makes it real. Now, if I, if mm-hmm. every photograph of me for the last week had a picture of me with my lawnmower, I'm not comparing your brother to a lawnmower. Mm-hmm. Then you would think, oh, m- maybe there's something to this. But mm-hmm. people want, people want to know. People want to know. Yes. Yeah, no, there's no comparison. Uh, there's no comparing my brother to a lawnmower. No, he's a, a full, full grown man. <laughs> Right, right, and a and a and a picture with me is not equivalent to a picture of you with a lawnmower, even if you posted it for a week, even if you posted a picture of you with a lawnmower right. for a year. Different, different, completely different. Uh, I have two brothers, and I really? have and I have three sisters. Oh, no way! Yeah, two brothers and three. What sisters. What else are you hiding from us, John? <laughs> well, you know, people forget that that. Um, no, 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 no. I know where you're going to say. <laughs> One hundred. <laughs> I'll, I'll let me cl- let me jump to the next stage, and that is to say, one hundred percent of your the details of your life must be told on all podcasts. They mu- <laughs> it must be exposed and 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 laid laid plain before us, uh-huh. or else you're not yes. doing your job as a as a podcast. You can't shame on you for calling yourself a podcaster if you're not t- revealing every detail to the listeners at all times, whether they want it or not. It's true. It's true. You're absolutely right. I'm. I have been. I have been remiss in my duties as a as an authentic, um, contemporary podcaster who works without a script or I, plan. I will say this though: the fact that you have multiple brothers and sisters that have never been mentioned mm-hmm. makes me feel better in a way. Mm-hmm. It's not like there was one brother that you just didn't want mentioned. You've got a whole, a whole group of people that that have been left out. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it it I think it's surprising or maybe surprising. It is surprising to some people uh how much I leave out of my online life. <laughs> yeah. You know, like there's so much that I don't say about who I am and and what my and what constitutes my life both uh in like sort of the socio-psycho-spiritual sense. <laughs> In that, because you know, I'm very revealing. I try to be. We talk about you know things that are very intimate, and I'm yeah. And I also, you know, I tell stories that seem fantastical, but they're they're all uh, you know largely true, ninety nine percent true. Every once in a while, I, I change somebody's name to protect them. Oh, yeah, we've got to do that. <clears throat> but uh, but there's a lot of stuff that I don't talk about because I'm I try to maintain privacy. But I don't care about privacy the way it gets talked about for the most part. Like if you want my passwords, if you want to read all my emails, that's fine. I don't care. Um, I don't – I'm not worried about being surveilled either. I don't even really care about uh, being tracked because I feel like it's inevitable to a certain degree the, the, uh, the prizes that contemporary technology – delivers unto us all the little gifts <laughs> all the dubious little gifts <laughs> yeah um you know it comes with the the side effect that we're being watched all the time and that my that my debit card knows exactly where i've been and somebody sitting at the at safeway headquarters in california can probably tell you more about me than some of my closest friends just by virtue of knowing what i buy at 11:30 p.m. At their local store, like, like 
the number of DiGiorno's pizza I have shame purchased in <laughs> yeah. the last two years at 11.39 p.m. When it's like, oh, my God, it's 11.30. I haven't eaten anything. I don't have the brains to think of a thing to eat now. I don't have the capacity to construct a, a menu for myself at 11.30. I shouldn't even be eating at 11.30. I should just go to sleep now. Right. But I'm going to run down to the Safeway. I'm going to get a DiGiorno and no one will know. No one will know, but Safeway knows. And who knows what Safeway is sharing that, who, who Safeway is sharing that with. So that <clears throat> there's a ton of privacy stuff that's just sort of like, I feel like that ship has sailed. I, I was all exercised about it uh, 15 years ago. But now, you know, CCTV land, I just, I go with the flow. But I conceal about myself a great number of things. <clears throat> and privacy is extremely important to me in like in, with certain specific very specific issues you're incredibly yeah. open and and revealing about things other people would say I would ne I would never speak about that let alone speak about it on a on a podcast. You're like, right. yeah, sure, it's no big deal. Like I did yep. that. That's right. And and um and I don't care if people are talking about me either. I love it if people are talking about me. I love it. I love the idea that people in my town are gossiping about me and somebody <laughs> says, oh, John Roderick is blah, 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 blah. Oh, really? Blah, 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 blah. Like, I don't, that, that, that doesn't bother me either. But certain things I've never, I don't, I just don't talk about. And it's, uh, and it's not, and they are not the things that are shameful, right? I mean, I, right. I talk about those things. Yeah. It's just other things, things that keep me just slightly out of focus, just in order that I not be known, completely known by anybody. Um, I think my mom knows me completely. And, um, and then from in concentric circles out from her, you know, people know me very, very, very well. And then, and that, that is a, that's a volcano shaped graph, right? And most people are, are, further down the slope. But I haven't mentioned <clears throat> my siblings on the show because it has never seemed necessary. Mm. Um, I, mean, I know or, you've mentioned your sister a few times in, in the telling of a couple stories. Oh, well, of, it's very necessary to mention my sister, Susan. Yeah. Because she is a... Um, she is a, a formidable force and and influence on me throughout throughout my life. So Susan is like a key key element in understanding what I'm talking about. Knowing that my sister Susan exists and that she is she weighs heavily. But my other siblings, <clears throat> so my oldest brother, uh, David, who was named after my father. Although he wasn't a junior, because in my family, it's okay to name your children after yourself, but you always change the middle name because there's a, there's a weird prohibition against being a junior. So my dad was David Morgan Roderick. My brother is David Rochester Roderick. Oh. And, and that has, <clears throat> that's been, uh, like recapitulated in my cousin's family. My cousin Colin named his third son Colin, but changed the middle name. No juniors. I don't know why. But my oldest brother was born in 1949. Um, 
making him what? 67? 49. Yeah. And, um, yeah. So he is, uh, so like, like your, your oldest brother is just a touch younger than my mom. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Right. Are you and the I baby? Are you the youngest? No, no. My sister's younger than oh. I am. Um, but <clears throat> yeah, my, my people have always, uh, you know, they are late to breed. Right. My <laughs> grandmother, uh, my grandmother was born in 1886. Wow. Meaning that, you know, I'm just that one, depending on how you count generations, one or two leaps away from, from the Victorians, right? My grandmother was a, a Victorian grandmother, right? And my great grandfather uh, was born before the Civil War. His father was a... Um, was a major in the Confederate army um, for Kentucky, fighting for Kentucky. And my father's grandfather was in the U.S. Cavalry, and he was the first, they were the first um, company to arrive at Little Bighorn after uh, the massacre. Hmm. So I'm, I'm just a, just very, just very few iterations away from what we think of as historical generations, right? I mean, I, I, uh, I didn't know most of them, but their, but their little turns of phrase are definitely communicated to me through my parents. But so my brother born in 49 was 18 when I was born, I guess. And most of my older siblings, well, let's say all of them, are uh, are members are baby boomers. You know, they're um, they're members of a of a, a different generation and and raised in a different time. And when I was a kid, you know, my family had a, a because it was connected to these olden days. There was a lot of sort of violence in my family and a lot of un, uh, un, um, unmitigated old time notions about how things were done and how life was led. So, you know, the generation before my father's generation, I mean, they pretty much just sat around the dinner table drinking until someone pulled a saber out and then they like had a sword fight And somebody, you know, like somebody stuck a candle in somebody else's eye. And that was, you know, like, like Friday night dinner. And so in the 1950s, that energy, because they, because according to the late breeder scheme, that gen, that prior generation was already pretty old, even when the first kids came along. Mm Mm-hmm. And so those first, my, my, the oldest brothers and sisters were raised in an environment, um, unrecognizable to me and incomprehensible, I think to most people, not just, I mean, unbelievable to people of my generation, incomprehensible to people of any generation born after 1980. 
where just the there was just it was just pure insanity. And so those kids, you know, they grew up uh, they grew up very differently than I did. And by their in their estimation, by the time I came along, all of the monsters had been defanged a little bit. You know, like my great uncle Al, Alfred Caldwell Rochester, fought in World War One and was a uh, According to everyone, just the just the consummate bastard, and the and what's amazing to me is that like these dinners, everybody talks about like how awful it was at dinner, and I'm like, why did you guys keep going to dinner? Why did you even eat dinner? It sounds like dinner was so awful. Why why did you not just have a big lunch and hide in your rooms at dinner time? But that <laughs> that wasn't an option. And it wasn't just, I mean, the abuse, let's, let's use the word abuse in, in the older sense uh, or in a, in the sense other than like what we now think of as child abuse. It's just general abuse that everyone suffered. Um, and that, that flowed in every direction. It was just like a dinner, a dinner, a dinner where it was just awful. Everyone was miserable all the time angry fighting recriminations accusations of infidelity pistol firing and you know an overturned turkey platters and it's just regular regular normal dinner well by the time i came along um uncle al was one of my favorite people in the world and everyone remarked in the family that when i was born al did what he normally did which was he loved babies. And so he loved me as a baby and everyone, you know, rolled their eyes and went tisk tisk because they knew that the, that the tradition was that Al at a certain, that the, at the moment that a child developed enough autonomous sensibility that that child expressed defiance and the, the child defied Al Rochester, mm-hmm. then Al would turn on them. And then from then on they would, you know, they would suffer his wrath but he never turned on me. And throughout my whole childhood, people would, you know, would remark like, Hal Rochester is so, he's so, he and John are so close. And he would do magic tricks. He would pull little coins out of my ear and he would pull little bullets from the Psalm or whatever out of his, out of his cufflinks. And he would say, abracadabra. And I couldn't say abracadabra. So I said, Aberdabber. <laughs> and so his name became Amber Dabber. That was what I called him. I called him Aberdabber until he died. And when I was 25. Wow. And I would say Aberdabber and he would say, Abracadabra. I don't know what we were t- trying to say to each other, but you know, he, we, uh, he was like a grandfather to me because my own grandfather died in the fifties and to my sister too, my younger sister, Susan. <clears throat> well, that wasn't true for anybody else in the whole clan. Nobody could, uh, nobody could understand what the hell, why all of a sudden he liked these kids. And, but we just grew up, we grew up not knowing how, what everyone else's experience was. And within my own family, there's a very clear line where my sister and I are considered privileged. And I mean, privileged in the sense that it's used now in, in contemporary culture. Right. We were unaware of our privilege 
because all of the cruelty and all of the insanity had been had been tempered by time and by the cultural explosions that happened. You know, my dad, my dad quit drinking before I was born, but my older brothers and sisters, he had not quit drinking. Then they, you know, they grew up in a, in an alcoholic household where I grew up in a, I mean, if you talk to people in out and the alcohol world, they would say that I also grew up in an alcoholic household, Mm -hmm. but it wasn't one with an, with an active drinker. So everything was much more like we were thinking about things by that point. You know, we were considering our actions, even if we, even if my dad was still insane, he wasn't like, he wasn't so drunk. He didn't know what would he, what he was doing right and so forth and so on and so that coupled with the age gap and coupled with the fact that in my opinion the baby boomers are the most unforgivably bad generation in american history they're just the most narcissistic short-sighted like self-aggrandizing group of of humans to ever like come down the pipe Mm. and the fact that the that the years between 1966 and 1970 were world historical in a lot of ways has buoyed the the self-image of baby boomers throughout the course of their entire lives so that they they feel a tremendous self-importance that they have not earned and that subsequent years have proved to be unearned Right. They've done a <clears throat> it's the boomers that have made the biggest mess of all. Um, and my and so my siblings are. Are from that time and and subject to those. Characteristics, too. So when I was a little kid, I'm just a little kid, right? Five years old, six years old. I come toddling into the house like, hey, I'm a kid. And the. Uh, <laughs> Next oldest person in my family is 20. Right. And they are the younger and they are young because there's a, because we're all standing in a room full of 65 year olds with fencing scars. Right. Sure. And like my parents and the 87 year olds in the room were incredibly generous to me and, and welcoming and, and gentle but everyone between 20 and 50 in that room, um, you know, kind of went out of their way to make me feel awful. My older brothers and sister. That sucks. Um, that sucks, though. You know, they were terrible to me. And not terrible like they didn't. It's not like they, they set my shoes on fire. They were just resentful. They were resentful of the the fact that i was that i appeared to be living a charmed life by their estimation because nobody was screaming at me or putting me in an ice cold bathtub and so they hated me at 5 years old for or resented me let's say and just sort of like yeah uh weren't very weren't very nice weren't very cool resented why because they are, because they're, uh, selfish or, I mean, they don't, they didn't recognize that a five-year-old was not the one that was 
in charge of wh- how well he was being treated. And they obviously could not perceive the, the difficulty I also was having living in that family. But, you know, I would come in and everybody would say, oh, John John is here. Here, John John, have a – here's – we made you a little hat. Like they, I'm talking about the old people. Right. And the young people would be like, well, and I was five years – or, you know, my brothers, when I was five years old, I didn't get a hat. I got a lesser hat. It's like, no, you didn't. You you had the hat. It's just at in 1968, you felt like the hat was some symbol of the war in Vietnam, and you you burned it with your draft card. That's not my fault. I'm five years old. Be nicer. So there was a lot of estrangement between us because they thought that I was little boy blue. Mm. And I recognized that they were just awful people and were awful people for a long time. Now, my brother Bart was always the nicest of them. Um, you know, he's a gentle guy and, and um, a dreamy guy and became a professional musician and was a professional musician his whole life. And so was, he was one he was the one that you could go watch Bart work. Like my Bart used to be in a band called Northwest Passage and they played uh, the contemporary hits of the day in 1976. And they toured all the black Angus restaurants of the Northwest. They had a contract where they would be the house band at a black Angus, which is a steakhouse. And they'd play at the black Angus for, you know, a couple of weeks or a month. They'd be there every night playing Steely Dan and, Fleetwood Mac and, um, and they were a great band and it was the seventies. So everybody was on drugs and it was very rock and roll. They wore matching suits. I mean, they were like Murph and the magic tones, uh, but rock, you know, like grand funk railroad. And my dad would take me to see them. And of course, again, in the 1970s, you could take a kid into a bar. Mm -hmm. Uh, you could take a kid into a titty bar. Really? I know for a fact, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, because there just weren't there were not limits as particularly in the in the west or in the north in the north there were no limits but so we would go watch bart play well bart wasn't really interacting with me specifically but i was watching him do his job which was amazing you know he was like he was a he had a really good time playing rock music and everybody got up and danced And so he was very influential on me. And then of all of them, he was the gentlest with me. Still not very interested in me, but like, at least he was kind. Mm -hmm. He didn't like step on my foot or whatever. Um, And so I always liked Bart and, and over the years have made a very, you know, like I've made a lot of effort and Bart has, has reciprocated for us to be friends, you know, and Bart and I are friends. Um, I, when I first left Alaska, I went and stayed in a little shed in a corner of Bart's orchard and Bart paid me to pick apples on his orchard for a while to make enough money to put gas in my motorcycle. So ever since I left home, like I've always tried to connect with Bart and for years, for years, this will give you an indication for years, whenever we would meet somebody, uh, because I should stipulate that they are half brothers and sisters. They're my father's children. And my mother has a daughter also, but I only met her um, 
after I was an adult. And she's also, you know, uh, born in the 50s. And we're actually close now, or closer. But, but I, didn't, I didn't know her growing up. But I did know my, the two brothers and a sister that were my dad's kids. But Bart, even after we were very close, even into my, even until I was in my 30s, whenever we would be introduced to somebody, Bart would say, oh, hey, and I'd like you to meet my half-brother, John. Hmm. And for years did this until one time I, in my 30s, I said, hey, Bart, it isn't necessary when you're introducing me to somebody in a restaurant that they know that I'm your half-brother. Right. Like, it's irrelevant. You're my brother. And by insisting on saying half. It's like dem- a demotion. Yeah. Yeah. It's intentional. It feels intentional. Yeah. And it, and it is intentional. And it, and it was intentional, I feel like, in Bart unconsciously back to this time I'm talking about, the early 70s, when it was very important to those kids that they distance themselves from my dad and everyone. And the easiest way or, or the, the place where they encountered the least resistance in that department was my sister and me because we were little children. They could call us half brother right to our face. And we all we all we had to do was sit there and say, I guess that means, you know, I guess the word I'm supposed to hear here is the word half rather than brother. Right. But that that became institutionalized in the way he thought or the way he spoke, and he can he persisted in it all the way until I finally said stop doing that, and he was like, oh oh well I'm sorry I didn't even think, and I was like well yeah that's the type of thing, uh that you should, or that that you're now thinking about at least now that I now that I brought it to your attention and he doesn't do it anymore. But my old you know my oldest brother David, um. He was the first person to ever get me drunk. And I was eight years old. Whoa. And he got me drunk to spite my father. Um, you know, like we were on a fishing trip and he and his buddy like kind of squirreled me away into the bush, right? I mean, we had flown in in a little bush plane uh, like out in uh, on the Alaska Peninsula, and the bush plane landed, dropped us off. We got into some flat bottom boat and went out into the into a river delta. And we were we had all situated ourselves in different places on the river. And <clears throat> I cast my line right away as soon as we got out of the boat and said, "I've got a fish." And and my brother was like. There's no way you caught a fit, you know, like, and he's in his twenties at this point, late twenties, you know, just like, you don't have a fish, like don't be an idiot. And I pulled out this enormous silver out of the water and everybody was like astonished except my brother who was mad. Hmm. And after a while, everybody, you know, kind of waited off and waited over here and found, um, found their place to fish and, and David kind of you know, under cover of some bushes or whatever said, Hey, you want to, Hey John, you want a beer? And I was like, sure. And he just fed me beers until I was shit faced at eight, you know, and, and did it, you know, did it, I think just to get, just to piss my dad off. So that was the, what that was 
how that relationship played out. And, you know, I, there, it's hard to say that it's hard to say about a person that's close to you, but he's just not a nice person and he's still alive. And I think is not, is, is largely alone by virtue of being not very nice. My sister Susan is, is much more of a, she's much more humane uh-huh. in some ways uh, than I am in, in the way that they sometimes say uh, about, uh, about certain kinds of people who are really, really good with kids and dogs. My sister is amazing with kids and dogs, but she's also good with people like my brother, David, who is like hobbled maybe to the level of like disability. He's disabled by hate or disabled by uh, resentment to the point that it incapacitates him. Hmm. And so my, my sister Susan is really good at being gentle in situations like that and gentle with him. But I can't be especially gentle with him because I don't have a ton of patience with being disabled by resentment. You know, if you spend a lifetime in resentment, it will, it will hobble you. It takes a physical toll as well as a mental one. And so I'm, I'm generally, you know, I'm generally not able to. Like I don't, I, I don't, I don't carry resentment. I, I hope enough that, that it is injuring me, but I, but I just, after a few years of trying pretty hard to be friends as an adult, I realized that it was, um, it was a bottomless situation and it, and it, I wasn't ever going to get what I wanted, which was the feeling of being loved by those people when I was, when I needed it most, you know? And so to be around somebody who's not very nice now seeking some repair, uh, for feelings that were created when they weren't very nice then wasn't a winning strategy. So I just sort of absent myself. I can't blame you. Yeah. But, but I don't, I don't blame that. Well, let me see if that's true. I understand that they had a hard go when they were growing up, but the people before them, my father's generation and my mother's generation had a, had a hard go that it like, that is blisteringly harder. You know, the, the things that my dad endured and my mom endured in their homes, um, are incomprehensible to me. And they did what they did through life. They, they that shit absolutely ran downhill. Yeah. But at each in each generation, it was le- it was exponentially less abusive. And so, my older siblings, I think, characterized the abuse that they received as as world historical abuse. Right? That is that. Uh, at least in in my brother's case, justifies him justifies him destroying his own life, mm. and 
that abuse at the hands of my own father, a man I knew pretty well, I would say better than anyone. Like I know who he was. I know what he, I can, I can guess what he was like when he was 30. Uh, and I'm sure it was terrible, but, but there's, um, but there's no perspective in that, in that generation of people, right? They, they, they felt that the crimes visited upon them were incomparable to those visited upon anybody else. And that isn't true. It's just not true. And, and, and I see echoes of that in contemporary society now where people are, are, you know, are feeling very strongly that the, that the insults that they're being dealt in our time are insults that have no, no comps, you know, no, um, there's no precedent for it. And somehow they're missing, they're missing key elements, right? That the, that the civil rights movement didn't start in 2011 and that people have been fighting a lot of these battles for a long time. And they used to, they used to disappear in the night, yeah. you know, yeah. not just get flamed on the internet. Um, and I just, I feel like, yeah, the bad things happened, but not so bad that you would, not so bad that it, it would cause you to, speak ill of a man at his own funeral. You're right. You know, like there's no bad thing that precludes just behaving with dignity unless you have let it, unless you have, uh, unless you've wallowed to the point that you have lost your, unless you wallow to the point that that you're no longer concerned with maintaining your dignity because what's what's primarily important to you is your own is the sense that you have that the injustice that you've borne um can never be righted right so you're in enti- so it's a form of of entitlement the injustice you've borne entitles you to do you know to to be forever the rest of your life in a defensive crouch. And I think you just, you know, if you go down the, if you put all of the billions of people who have ever lived on a ladder and started scrolling super fast scroll, you know, and on the top of the ladder is the person who suffered the greatest injustice of all humans in the history of time. Who knows who that one holy person must have been that suffered the great, the single person who has suffered the greatest injustice. And you start scrolling down that list and scroll and scroll and scroll and scroll and scroll and scroll. Like my siblings are somewhere a long, long, long way down past when you got so bored of scrolling, sure, you know, it's, sure. it's, it's like the timeline of, of, uh, the history of the earth. And it's, 50 stories tall. And then the last two centimeters are since the dinosaurs. (laughs) Right. And, um, and that's, you know, that's about where I rank, um, the, the, the injustices delivered to delivered to my brother, but, but he wouldn't say, he wouldn't say that he'd put himself right up there with, 
with uh, Mother Teresa. And it's funny, right? Because this is this is my family. I mean, I was raised by the same people. And just a few years later, but there were major changes made. And I think those major changes were changes that were that were inextricable from their historical moment. You know, like my mother was the was the first generation of feminists and my father was the first generation really of people to benefit from Alcoholics Anonymous. And so those two major social upheavals happening during a time when there was also really like the civil rights movement was happening and there had never really been an anti-war movement like that before. Right, sure. And it was, we were living in an atomic age. Like all those things, there aren't really, there aren't really precedents for it. It does make that time miraculous. And I did come along after, in the immediate aftermath of those things. I was born in 68. And, you know, Lyndon Johnson was still president when I was born. Um, so it was, you know, it was still that moment. And it had, a, it had an effect on my parents. My dad didn't Archie Bunker, right? He didn't sit down and say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to maintain the belief system of, of 1939. Right for the rest of my life, he evolved and was a different person and didn't, um, you know, didn't make me sit in a ice cold bathtub like his father made him. And nobody ever hit me, you know, nobody ever hit me, but it's super hard for me to imagine this same guy only 15 years prior. Um, being uh, Vlad the Impaler because I, I, you know, I know he wasn't. So anyway, so I don't, I don't often refer to them that part of my clan because the, the influence they had on me was largely negative. It was inhibiting, right. you know, I would, I would go into situations and I was a precocious kid, fun to be around. If you like kids, the one place in the world where I was not well received was my own clan. And in particular, the, the, my own brothers and, and sister and cousins. You know, because the adults thought I was great. I mean, my aunt Judy Lee was pretty tough on me. She didn't like my haircut, right? <laughs> and or my table manners. Uh, but all of that was a proxy for the fact that she didn't like my mother. But like, you know, it's it's okay if if you're if you're seven or eight years old and you wander into to a room where there are a bunch of sixty year olds talking talking about Nixon. It's okay for them to say, "Hey, kid, why don't you run and play?" But there was nowhere for me to run and play 
except into the arms of these 20-year-olds who were sadists. And so I, you know, like, and we, we hung out with the family a lot, right? So I avoided, there were, there were, you know, there were closets under the stairs, let's say, where my sister and I would go, would go play with some, with the old toys from the sixties or from the fifties that were left lying around. So I don't think of them as influential on me, except in a, except in a negative sense. And it doesn't sound like you're especially close or, or can be really. I mean, with Bart, I'm, I'm close with Bart's daughter, my niece. And, you know, I am close with Bart. I mean, the, what's nice is that as a musician, Bart developed respect for me. And when I was first starting out in music, you know, Bart had been a professional music for years and he was like, Oh great kid. You're playing music. That's nice. Let me know if you ever need any guitar picks or, or right. whatever. But as time went on, I made albums and, and, um, he likes my music. Mm. So, so Bart, you know, Bart developed respect for me, but also Bart's the nicest of them. Right. So Bart not only developed respect, but also was fine showing it he actually was is generous with it he's generous with praise yeah and bart's evolved um so i'm cl- i am close with him i wish i saw him more um but my older brother david has never praised me he's incapable of it So no, I mean, that's not a, it's not a relationship I would pursue because at this point, particularly now that he's getting old, um, see, I think, but I think that makes sense as far as what you talk about. Cause in general, we want to talk about and think about the things, or it's healthier to think about the things that, that make us happy. You know, it's healthier to think about the things that energize us and, and, and bring back fond memories. And it's not saying that it's bad to ever think about something unpleasant. I mean, we've got to learn from the things that happen to us. Right. But can't say I blame you. Yeah. I went to an event the other day that was very, I'm starting to get to know my cousins a little bit better. And my cousins are also older than I am, although not, I mean, the, my, the, the first cousin that's closest in age to me is about 10 years older than I. But I have several first cousins that I'm that I'm building relationships with. And I went to an event the other day because my my grandmother died. I'm sorry. My grandmother did die. But my aunt, my brother's mother, died. Not my brother's mother. What I don't what am I talking about? <laughs> my aunt, my father's sister died suddenly at age 65. She sat down in a chair to read a book and she had something, something happened in her heart and she just passed away and it was sudden and it was not, nobody uh, was ready for it. And her husband really adored her. And so at the time he bought a, um, a big lot, a big sort of abandoned lot 
in what was then a pretty poor and rundown neighborhood in Seattle uh, called the Madison Valley. And he built a park for her in the, in sort of the Italian style. And it was, the park was an anomaly in the neighborhood. It was this very elegant and formal park, unlike most, you know, most parks in Seattle are done in a naturalistic style, sort of Olmstead style, trees and rolling hills and so forth. And this was a very formal park. Um, and he built this park as a memorial to her. And it, and it wasn't a city park. He just maintained it, paid to have it maintained. And, and as the years have gone on, eventually my uncle died and his, you know, his kids were maintaining the park. Uh, but the neighborhood changed quite a bit. And now it, it was becoming an expensive neighborhood and little by little, it just started from the standpoint of the, of the city and the family. It just became clear that they were going to donate the park to the city of Seattle. And the city of Seattle parks department was now sort of, I don't know, more capable of keeping this park up to the, to these standards or the formality of it, I guess. And so they just had an event a few days ago where they dedicated the park over to the city, donated the, the whole thing to the town. It was a nice event. The deputy mayor was there and some people, I, uh, some people from the city that I met when I was running for office, you know, like various sort of, um, city, city people. But then we all, the, the cousins and I went to the cemetery and the cemetery was where we, we, uh, my older generation really really practiced some kind of weird ancestor worship because we spent a lot of time at this cemetery. Lakeview Cemetery is Seattle's like old cemetery. It's where Bruce Lee is buried. Really? And Brand Brandon Lee, uh, among other notary no, uh, notaries. Um, and so we have a, we have a little cluster of graves there, the Rochesters and the Knutsons. And there are now, you know, getting close to a dozen of us buried there. And we went there all the time. Every opportunity they got, my dad and uncle and aunt would go to the cemetery. And my dad would stand there and talk to his mother and, you know, like, and we would do the thing that we did, which was sit and tell jokes and, and, um, and play the dozens. So ever since my dad died, I wasn't, you know, because my dad died and then my, my aunt had been dead for a long time. And then my uncle died right after that. My uh, uncle Cal, uncle Jack is the only one left and he lives in Alaska. So all of a sudden we weren't going to the cemetery anymore. I, I buried my dad there, but he didn't want to argue with anybody in the family about where he was going to be situated in the family plot, because somehow by virtue of inheritance, 
the control over the family grave plot fell to my uncle Junius. And it was very complicated talking to uncle Junius about where anyone would go because Junius's nature, I think was to, was to maintain hegemony over or hegemony, however you want to say it over the areas of the, of the plot just in case late in life he had 40 kids or something. I have no idea, but I remember conversations about the family plot being a topic that could potentially devolve into lots of legalistic talking with everybody sort of staring over their uh, one another's shoulders, you know, like, and so my dad in his inimitable fashion like short circuited the thing by secretly without telling anyone buying a neighboring plot, but it's like separated by two other families and facing the wrong direction. But if you stand on my dad's plot, you can face the rest of the family standing on the family plot and you can't like reach out and touch hands, but if you had a broomstick, you could hold the broomstick all the way out. And then on the other side, they could touch the end of the broomstick. Like it's about that far, right? 15 feet, maybe. Right. So, and, and, and then that keeps surprising everybody. Like your dad is over there, but my, it, it fell to my sister and me, my sister, Susan, to erect a gravestone suitable of my father's legacy. And we, and my sister at the time was traveling the world and unavailable for comment. And I talked to some local artists about a gravestone. And at one point was talking to somebody who was like, let's make a crystal obelisk. I was like, well, I don't know if I really can afford a crystal <laughs> obelisk. That would be a huge fuck you to everybody. But All right. And, and that, you know, the desire to have, his grave. I mean, his the fact that his grave is fifteen feet from the rest of the family and facing the wrong direction is the kind of fuck you that he would like to live on forever. But his gravestone also should be some combination of like, here is an honorable gravestone for an honorable man, and also there's something on it that communicates fuck you to everybody. Okay, because you know that's as as he. As he uh, as he died, so did he live. Uh, but like his great uncle's gravestone has this long inscription about, you know, raconteur, businessman, ethicist, uh, paleobiologist, east and wests, east and west, his worlds collide, or something like that. And we were standing over the gravestone the other day, me and my cousins, reading it, and one of my Cousins turned to me and said, what is this? What is he talking about here? What's going on here? Did, wait a minute. He didn't write this, did he? Al wrote this. And I was like, yeah, Al wrote it. Mm. And East and West suggests to the viewer, suggests to the reader that this was a man who bridged continents and whose business interests took him to Japan and China and what was affectionately then called the Orient. 
But in fact, it just means that he lived on the East Coast for a while and the West Coast for a while. Uh, he, uh, that Uncle Junius, that's Uncle Junius the Elder. Uncle Junius married the woman who was the heir to the Buster Brown shoe fortune. And he lived in Greenwich, Connecticut in a big, big, big house on the water that was the Buster Brown shoe fortune house. And that large house gave him the ability to write pedantic dictating letters to my grandmother about how she was conducting her life. Oh, but my cousins are all very interesting people They They all have red hair. Really? Yeah. And they are, uh, they're successful business people. My aunt was a, was a hard charger and she raised her kids to be successful in, um, Successful in the in the world, in the actual world as it stands, not successful in the imaginary world that my father thought existed. He raised me to be very successful in that world. But they're they are they are successful people. And I've always been uh because the youngest of them was ten years older than me, it was kind of the same thing. They weren't cruel to me, they just didn't they weren't interested in me. I was just a little kid their whole lives. But now they realize I'm a man in my 40s. Holy cats. And we're all becoming friends. And I like it. I'm enjoying it quite a bit. Um, this was the first time in my entire life that I stood in, stood with my three first cousins, and it was just the four of us. Hmm. Like, first time in, in any of our lives. And we're all kind of looking at, e- at each other in amazement. Like, oh, huh. Uh, oh, look at you there. Like, you're not just um, a caricature of a person that was sitting around the, the, sitting around the big dinner table where all the sabers were sheathed. You're, uh, like, you're a, you're a grown person and I am too. And at our current age, like the 10 year difference doesn't really even seem that, seem that big. Hmm. So hopefully there, and you know, my daughter really likes my cousin Paige. I, I'm astonished by it. And then Paige loves Marlo. I mean, I, I wouldn't have thought that they would have, uh, that they would have bonded, but there, there it is family, you know? Yeah. Family was so important to the older generation. So important for some fucking reason. I've never been able to figure it out. <laughs> family was so, they were, they were so hard on each other, but it was really important that we get together, that we remember, that we, um, that, that we, that we persist in a closeness that none of us felt. And after they were all gone, I think, cause it's been 10 years since my dad died, we all felt released released from a weird contract we'd never signed. Like, bye con Dios. Hmm. The last Thanksgiving we had, let us, let us have it be the last. But time goes on and, and you realize like, oh, you're the only other people in the world that know what I'm talking about when I talk about these people. And um, it ends up that does matter. At least has, it started to matter to me. I think it does. Yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, I'm not, I don't, I don't stand on my dad's grave and talk to him. Right. But it's because I only put a little bit of his ashes in that graveyard. And I'd say 90% of his ashes are in an urn and he lives under my piano. So the vast majority of my dad is with me every day. I put his pilot's license and like a, a half a cup of his ashes and a couple of high-end chocolates in a little uh, like wormwood urn and buried it in the cemetery. And I was the only one there. There was the director of the cemetery, two guys with shovels, like out of an Edward Gorey drawing. Right. It was a rainy day and I showed up with my little urn that I had made of, because my, because my dad was very specific. He wanted his ashes spread a variety of places. He wanted them sprinkled in the middle of Lake Washington where he had spent so many wonderful hours on the Washington crew team. He once swam across Lake Washington. So he had a, he wrote a real connection to the lake and he wanted some of his ashes there. He wanted some of his ashes secretly deposited under the holly tree in Volunteer Park because his grandfather, George Alfred Caldwell, Caldwell Rochester, had his ashes put buried under the holly tree in Volunteer Park in 1929 when the holly tree was very small. And now the holly tree is very big. And my whole life, when they would drive by or walk by the holly tree, he and my uncle would both salute. Salute like little boys. Right. At the holly tree. Because when they were little, they did. They went across the street and saluted at the holly tree. So he wants some of his ashes under the holly tree. And I don't know whether he wants me to salute him or not. And then he wants some of his ashes sprinkled from a bush plane over uh, Max's Mountain outside of Girdwood. And I think my sister at some point convinced him that he wanted his ashes also thrown out of an airplane onto Mount Susitna in Alaska. <laughs> but then one time I was talking to him and I was like, do you really want your ashes on Mount Susitna? And he was like, nah, your sister just talked me into it. So anyway, he's got, he had a plan to have his ashes widely dispersed, but I have preferred to keep the majority of his ashes here under my piano for 10 years, just because it seems fitting. When, when I was a little kid, he had a, an office in the top floor of the Alaska railroad building and behind his desk, there was a big credenza that had drawers, uh, not sliding uh, shelves. And I played in his office. There was also a walk-in vault in his office. I mean, it was like a walk-in vault where they used to keep gold dust. Like it was a real Old West kind of building and an Old West sort of complex of offices that he inhabited as the chief counsel. And I would play under his desk, and one day I was playing, and I found this urn. And I said, what is this urn? And he said, oh, those are the ashes of the Secretary of Transportation's mother. Um, and he asked me to sprinkle those ashes on, guess where, Mount Susitna. <laughs> Because she had always wanted, she had always wanted her ashes uh, sprinkled on Mount Susitna. I don't know why. The so the Secretary of Transportation 
was a good friend of my dad's. His name was Brock Adams, and he was the he had been a senator, he had been a uh, representative, and he was um, he was Jimmy Carter's Secretary of Transportation, and you know he he was a a um, a prominent Democrat and Washingtonian, not a man unfamiliar with scandal, but like a man of my father's era, right? Sure. Ser- served in the Navy. They were pals. And so Brock asked my dad to sprinkle his mother's ashes on Mount Susitna and dad never got around to it. Hmm. So, or got around to, he got around to it eventually, but like this was 1978 or something. And Brock's mom had died several years before and, and the ashes were still in my dad's office. And I was like, really dad? Like, did you tell Brock that you had done it? And he said, well, it hasn't come up, but he assumes that I did. It's like, you really should do this. Like we have a plane. Let's go do it. He didn't invite me to do it. I don't know. I don't know when it happened. I'm not sure whether he flew over and I don't know. I don't, I'm sure he did it. I'm sure he conducted an honorable ceremony at some point. But when my dad ended up under my piano, I thought back to Brock Adams's mother and said, this is fitting, Dad. Don't you think that you would live here with me for a while and you, and bathe in the sounds of my piano? And in, and when when uh, when my daughter was little, I had to tell her like that's an urn that we don't play with because right. we don't knock it over. Right. Um, but but what the the small quantity of his ashes that I did bury, I'm there in the cemetery and they've they've prepared this hole for me and they've done this whole, this whole funeral business where they've like, they've carpeted around the hole with special carpeting. So you don't, so you're not conscious of it being a hole in the ground or something. It's like, it's this little, it's a little, they've created a little cave and the two, the two guys with the shovels and the, the unctuous funeral, not funeral guy, but the, the, the president of the cemetery, because it's a historic cemetery. They have this whole, there's a whole kit and caboodle and the, the we're all standing there and he's like, you know, would you like to say a few words? And I was so embarrassed. Like, what are you guys doing here? Like, get out of here. Leave me alone. I'm, you know, I'm going to put my little, my urn in the ground with my dad's pilot's license and his ashes here. I don't want you guys watching me. Right. And so, they kind of all like uncomfortable, didn't know what to do. And they sort of uncomfortably turned around. And I was like, no, I don't, it's not like I want you to turn around. I'm not going to, um, take my shirt off or anything. I just <laughs> like, I didn't expect that the four of us were going to have a ceremony and, and it's, it was raining. So everybody else is in like the exact dark Navy trench coat that you would expect at a, at like a, a comical, a comically serious cemetery. Right. And I was genuine, genuinely moved. I didn't, uh, I wasn't taking this ceremony unseriously. I was like very moved and also the only one in attendance. So I'm having this very strange sort of Harold and Maude experience of like, okay, dad, it's you and me. And we're going through the portal here. Now you're going to be in the cemetery and we're all going to come stand on your gravestone and tell jokes and tell stories about you the way that 
we used to do together about your people. And these other weirdos here, these two guys with the shovels are standing around. So I can't really say this to you now. Uh, but anyway, like sail on sailor. Yeah. And I, I kind of put him in the ground and like said, all right, well, thanks a lot, you guys. And just booked, I booked out of there and I'm not sure what they thought I was going to do. Like stand and play the, the bagpipes or something while they, while they filled in the hole. I have no idea. But we still haven't, my sister and I still haven't procured a gravestone. So my dad's actual gravesite is now completely grown over with grass. The marker that marks the site was sort of, you know, like it's a marker, but it's not meant as a, as a gravestone. So the cemetery doesn't manicure it. So after my sister got back from her world travels, sometime in the last five years, I said, listen, th- figuring out dad's gravestone is a project like that, that just feels like beyond my capabilities. It requires that you talk to everybody in the family. It requires that everybody be invested. And it's, it just, it's a, um, it's a management problem and I cannot bite it off. Will you take responsibility for this? And she said, absolutely. That I can do that in my sleep and then proceeded not to do anything either. But so we're all standing there in the graveyard and, and as the final coup de gras, my father's grave, which is again, situated elsewhere from the actual family plot and facing the wrong direction also cannot be found, cannot be located with, without, you know, 15% uncertainty. So I was standing there sort of drawing a large circle saying it's in this vicinity. It's sort of right, generally right here. And my cousins are, they're not exactly like roll their eyes at you type of people. Mm-hmm. They're more like concerned nod type of people. <laughs> so they were giving me the concerned nod. Whereas if my brother had been there, he would have been rolling his eyes. But maybe this year, my sister and I will finally find the headstone and find the appropriate inscription, David Roderick, lawyer, man of East and West, <laughs> rock on tour, some, some thing that echoes the, the, uh, the pure BS that's on my great uncle's gravestone. Right. Uh, but you know, but not so much that it, that it reads as a parody. Some, somehow my daughter, when she was very young and we would drive by cemeteries and go to this cemetery, she got it really early. What cemeteries were, you know, I think that maybe a lot, this is true. A lot of kids, cause they look at them and they're like, that's a cool park. Right. It looks different from everywhere else. Yeah. And you're like, well, it's not a park exactly, but she understood it. At a very young age when she was still, you know, before she could really even speak in long sentences. And she, she said, oh, you know, when people die, they go in their stone. That's cool. And I was like, yeah, they do. They go in their stone. And so now that she's old enough to understand maybe a lot better what a cemetery is, she's still, that's, that is the turn of phrase we use. That's so cool. So we need to get a stone so that 
you know, so that she can fully understand that Grandpa David is in his stone. <laughs> 